our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. Welcome to Unspun, the podcast that makes you better at finding the truth. The way people get news is changing. It used to be that there were many reporters who would research stories and write articles, but now politicians and famous people share information directly with you on social media and the internet. That means you find out things fast, but it's up to you to make sure the information's actually accurate. And newsmakers don't always do their part. The temptation to manipulate information is strong. They bend the truth to deceive so that they can avoid accountability, so that they can advance their agendas. When you recognize these agendas, you can sometimes find out what's real. And we're at a crossroads where anyone can share anything online. So it's important to sharpen your critical thinking skills. Finding that deception before it goes viral is pretty much a survival skill now. And we're going to do it together. Let's get unspun. Welcome to this week's Unspun. We've been doing some cleaning around our house as we're getting ready for the holidays. And one of the things that we've done is get rid of a lot of stuff. And I have to tell you, there's always a moment of hesitation for me when I have things that have belonged to the family for a long time, or they're from my high school student when she was in elementary school. Things that seem like they should matter, it's really hard to throw them out. Did you know that that's actually a kind of thinking issue? It's called an appeal to history or sometimes an appeal to tradition, but it's assigning value to something just because it's been around for a long time. So let's learn a little bit more about that today. If that high schooler was in school in Alabama, they might have a chance to go to a high school that was named for a Confederate figure. There are actually several. For example, in Huntsville, Lee High School is named for a road that's named for Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And in Montgomery, Davis High School is known for Confederate President Jefferson Davis. At the same time, though, if we were in Virginia, James Madison University students can go into Harper Allen Lee Hall, which is named for two African-American workers who are important to the university. That's a rename, though. It was changed from Ashby Hall, which was named for a Confederate cavalry officer. This kind of renaming of educational buildings has been a topic of conversation and sometimes action in the South ever since the Unite the Rights rally and violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. So what's up with Alabama? Well, let's listen to Alabama Governor Kay Ivey speak on the subject, and that can be this week's warm-up. We must learn from our history. And uh, we don't need folks in Washington or out-of-state liberals telling us what to do in Alabama. And I believe that it's more important that we, if we're going to get where we want to go, we've got to understand where we've been. And I believe the people of Alabama agree with that decision and support protecting all of our historical monuments. So she says, if we're going to get where we want to go, we have to understand where we've been and that she values history. The history is really anything that's old, right? An old broken bottle could be history. You can value history without putting up a statue that honors people who fought against your country, or, you know, one that makes some Americans feel like they're just less than others. That kind of an appeal to tradition can be especially tricky because it can discourage or eliminate the opportunity to talk about important issues. You can see important debates kind of stagnate, and nobody is willing to reconsider their stances because it's just always been that way. This specific logic problem exploits human psychology. This appeal to tradition or history asserts that whatever's been around for a long time must be good or true just because it's been around for a long time. And you know, some kinds of long-term precedent do make us comfortable. 
and maybe we don't like change so much, but that doesn't guarantee that the decisions we make are going to be ethical. And this matters today because a lot of debates hinge on how we're going to resolve our traditions against needed progress. So imagine a community that staunchly upholds a tradition of beginning public meetings with a prayer. Some people could argue that it's a long-standing tradition and it needs to continue. But this tradition might exclude some people of different beliefs, and it violates the principle of inclusivity. From church-state divisions to gun policies to gender norms, these appeals to nostalgia and history shut down those complex discussions that we need. Let's hear another example. The reason we had so many overreaching regulations in our nation is because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. That appeal to the founding fathers is also an appeal to history. After all, who are we to disagree with the founding principles of our own country? Now, many historians would say that Boebert is wrong about what the founding fathers would have believed. But even if she were right, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to go along with what has always been there. There can be real tension between honoring history and making progress, and this reduces our ability to change. So we need to be able to remember that any custom or any belief can be scrutinized, no matter how long it's been around. Health and medicine is one place where we have a lot of strong opinions. You know, so for example, when I was a baby, moms were advised to put babies to sleep on their tummies. And I remember hearing this advice from older women when I had children, even though that's no longer good advice and definitely not what is recommended. How about you? Maybe you were encouraged to put butter on a burn? That was standard practice for a long time too, but that tradition could actually make things worse. Health and science are especially vulnerable to appeals to tradition because people don't always understand or have access to the newest information. When I come back, my guest and I are going to discuss this further. Back soon. All right, welcome back, everyone. My guest this week is Dr. Ben Ryan. Ben is a neuroscientist and a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford, and he creates content to explain science for an online audience of close to a million. So welcome to Unspun, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love it if you could tell us just a little bit more about your background, the kinds of things you study. So I'm a postdoc at Stanford, as you mentioned, and my research has always been focused on, well, neuroscience broadly, but my research interests are centered around social interaction. So I've always been interested in why people behave the way they do in social settings. I spent my PhD studying autism spectrum disorder, and now I'm studying empathy. Um, but specifically, I'm studying how certain drugs that enhance empathy do so in the brain. Okay, very interesting. Um, so I know that you've built a really large following on several social media channels, and I will put a link to those in the show notes. Um, and it's mostly dealing with science communication. So what made you choose that as kind of a passion of yours? It's funny because I, I've noticed that throughout my life, I tend to sort of stumble into things that I really love, and it happens often unintentionally. Like for my research, for example, I always wanted to study social behavior, but I couldn't find any research labs that, that had social behavior as the focus. And so I ended up picking a lab and starting my PhD, and then like three years into it, I realized that I'm studying autism and I'm studying social behavior. 
And it's, it's kind of the same with social media where it happened sort of out of my control where I posted a video on TikTok, not intentionally. I was just using the, the software to record myself for a video that I was planning to post on my Facebook for my friends and family. And what ended up happening was the TikTok algorithm overlords did their thing and the video ended up getting 1.6 million views. And I felt the impact of that as a, cause the video was educational and I, and I really felt it. And I thought, you know, my scientific papers don't get this many views. So if I have the ability to reach, you know, millions of people through the internet, then it could be an amazing opportunity for science education. And through this sort of naturalistic exper experiment, I discovered a passion for science communication that has really grown um, into not only a, a great fun hobby for me, but truly a, a bit of a career. So I'm very happy with everything that's happened. Oh, really neat. Um, so today I teach aspiring journalists kind of the craft, uh, but I did used to be a reporter and one of the things I used to cover was health and science. And one of the things that I found was that a lot of scientists find it really hard to explain their work in a way that people who don't have their training can understand. Um, do you think I'm on target with that? Absolutely. And uh, yes, I, I certainly agree. Um, I'm not, are you familiar with the three minute thesis competition? Yeah, absolutely. But you want to explain it for my audience really quickly? Yes. Yeah, so it's a it's a competition held at graduate schools um, across the world. I, I think it's not just the United States. I'm pretty sure it's global or at least multiple nations. And the challenge is you're a Ph.D. student. You've been studying your research for however many years. And you must now take all of that and compress it into three minutes and explain everything you can in three minutes to a, to a live audience with no scientific background. So it's the three minute thesis. And um, I bring it up because to answer your question, so I do some some coaching for the University of Minnesota. I, I coach their contestants um, where I have them pitch their presentation and then I walk through it. And it, what I often experience is that they really struggle with the sort of ethical component of making their research, which is so complicated and so thoughtful, and there's hours and like thousands of hours going to thinking up the experiments and designing them and taking all of that and distilling it into something overly simplified. It's almost painful for them. And I remember experiencing that for myself too, where I was like, no, no, I can't leave out this. That's critical. And this part and all this nuance. And, and I've, I've found that, you know, I think it's sort of a issue with the way that the um, scientific training process unravels in that you begin as a lay person and you slowly and progressively become able to listen in on scientific discussions and speak and write and read in scientific language but there's never any process to sort of back translate that so that you can actually explain all this terminology you're learning back to someone who doesn't have your training and so i love the three minute thesis for that reason because it's a great exercise in that but I, I am of the maybe radical opinion that I, I think science communication should be a component of every PhD um, program. I think there should be one class of just how to explain your research or science in general to the lay public. And um, yeah, I, th I think it's extremely important. And I've become more and more sort of radicalized in that opinion over time where I've been exposed to more and more situations where having the skills, having developed the skills through kind of exercise, if you will, of being on social media that has trained me to sort of perform in a way that's that's really advantageous. I mean, when you're, I, this is what I always say to the students that I, that I coach for the three minute thesis is, you know, these skills, they may seem like kind of peripheral to your training. They may not really seem that critical, 
but every PhD student experiences this moment where they are, let's say, sitting at a, a table with donors and this, you know, these really wealthy people who want to support science and they ask you, what is your research about? And you find that in this moment where you could really make an impact on like supporting your own research and potentially securing some funding, you struggle to explain it. Or you're at Thanksgiving dinner and your family member asks you about your research and, and you know, maybe they don't, they, maybe they have uh, oppositional opinions about science and it's a great opportunity for you to share some, some research from the inside that might sway their opinion um, and you struggle with it. And you think, man, I really wish I just had the skills to, to communicate science. And I think, so t to answer your question in one sentence, I just think it's because there's really no training. There's not enough training built into the scientific process um, or the scientific education process to equip scientists with the skills to, to communicate with the public. Okay, interesting. Um, so I'd like to flip the question around a little bit and ask, um, have you dealt with journalists? And if so, what has that experience been like for you? Only a little bit. Um, I went to the International Journalism Festival in Perugia, Italy this year. That was really cool. I mean, I have nothing but respect for journalism or for journalism as a field and journalists. Um, I think it's a, you know, uh, sort of one of those underappreciated jobs that uh, is really difficult to do. And, um, you know, I, I think there's luckily it seems like it, a, an expansion of science journalism in the last, I don't know, few decades, I would say, um, which is great. But I think it's... Uh, extremely important as it always has been for any journalists or, me or media outlets covering science topics to make sure that they're you know sticking as closely as they can to the the scientific truth you know or whatever the the information that is being presented i think it, it, it's a it's a career that um a lot of scientists would do really well in it wow that's really interesting um yeah, so, you know, like I used to actually be a science journalist or I used to cover science, I guess, for a local newspaper would be a more fair way to say that. It was one of many hats that I had to wear. But um, it's as I deal with students right now, it's interesting because a lot of times my students are not always the most eager science students, if that makes sense. Um, a lot of journalists are math phobic. And um, because of that, the way that uh, they encounter science classes sometimes is uh, not all that engaging for them. So it kind of creates an interesting disconnect that I think causes some problems with how we learn about science from the media. I'm also math phobic, so it's not just journalists. Fair enough. Okay. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about your process. So can you talk about like what it takes for you to make one of the videos that you make? Totally. So generally, um, my, my video creation process is a several hour process that results in a you know, 60 second clip, which is sort of frustrating, but, um, it begins with, of course, the identification of it. Like I've done videos where it's like a literature review of the neuroscience of depression. And it's like, that's tough. Cause <laughs> how do you explain all that in a brief, you know, sub two minute video? So I've, I've gotten better over time at identifying like, this is going to be my topic and this is going to be the message. So usually I'm, I'm either focusing on a paper, presenting it in a concise way, um, I'm debunking some misinformation that I've encountered or I'm sharing just a sort of general neuroscience principle. So I'll talk about a paper summary because that's maybe the most easy to talk about. Of course, I begin by reading the paper and usually then reading it again and making sure that I really understand it. Because uh, if I'm going to take a peer-reviewed scientific article and, and compress it into a 60-second video, I better make sure that I'm representing it accurately. 
So I read it and I start to take notes, bullet points of the things that jump out to me as like what can be a part of my video. And once I've established sort of an outline, then I script it. I always use a script. And I've learned that after some time for the first six months or so, I wasn't using a script in any of my videos, but I highly recommend it for anyone making videos because A, it allows you to um, use the right terminology. It, when you're filming yourself, you're much more vulnerable to making a mistake or using careless language that can either misrepresent the topic or potentially leave sort of Swiss cheese holes for people to attack the argument. Because unfortunately, there are many people on social media who want to you know, diminish and criticize science. Um, so don't give them any opportunities to do so. Uh, and then the second piece of it is it allows you to control the timing of your videos. If you, if you script it all out, you know exactly, you can just read your script and you know exactly how long the video will be. So I always script it out. Um, then what I like to do, if I'm able to, is I'll completely forget about it. I will leave the script in my computer and three or four days later, when I've totally forgotten what I've written, I'll come back and I'll read it again. And that gives me a really fresh perspective and I can usually identify sort of the hang up points where people would get lost or, you know, miss something or something was, wasn't clearly articulated or it's confusing. And then I'll, I'll rewrite those sections of the script. And then at that point, I usually film it. So I film it on my phone. I, and then once it's up, once it's done, then I figure out a caption and I choose the right sound if I want to have a, some background music. And then um, I schedule and post it. So it does take quite a bit of time for the little pieces that come out in the end. And it sounds like you had to learn a lot about uh, sort of getting engagement on social media and file formats and all kinds of stuff like that, too. Yeah, some extra time there. So one of the things you mentioned was uh, making some videos just to debunk pieces of misinformation that you see. How do you see those? Do they kind of come to you or do you go out looking for them? Well, luckily for me, um, at least on TikTok, I've developed sort of a, a reputation for debunking videos. And so what often happens is people who follow me or who've seen my videos before will tag me in videos that they see and think, you know, either this is fishy or I want to know if this is true or not. So people will sort of, you know, almost use me as like Google where it's like, I want to know if this is true. I'm just going to tag this guy and hopefully he'll, he'll debunk it or he'll fact check it really. Um, but once in a while I'll get videos that come across my, my feed, but my algorithm knows that I generally like science aligned content. And so it'll show me other, you know, science communicators doing a fantastic job. And it very rarely shows me, you know, something egregiously incorrect. Um, so I usually get the, those videos from being tagged in them. Um, can you describe one of your videos that you're particularly proud of? Uh, Sure. Um, probably my favorite video that I ever made was there was this person and they were saying that <clears throat> anybody who wants to learn anything can um, can do so on the Internet. And, you know, basically sort of endorsing this idea of, like, do your own research because, you know, the scientists and Doctors are gatekeeping the information and they don't want you to know it, but it's all online. You can find anything anywhere. And I made this somewhat long video where I basically explained that what the person said was true, that if you wanted to learn anything, you could find it on the Internet. But it's important that you first off go to the right sources. You know, if you go to PubMed or Google Scholar and look at peer reviewed scientific literature versus finding blog posts on the on the Internet in random dark corners of the Web. That's a huge initial part. 
But once you've found some scientific literature, it's really important to actually be sure that you understand it before you start propagating the information. Because what will happen a lot of times is people will they'll read the abstract of a paper and they'll say, you know, and, and it makes them feel like, you know what, I am consulting the scientific literature. They read this abstract and, you know, they say, okay, this is what it taught me. And they go on social media and they say, science says this or that. But meanwhile, you know, they don't realize there is no data for that. It was just that they, that someone was proposing it as a theory or it was one study and they had three people in the study, but then there's other studies that have 4,000 people and clearly show that there's no effect. And so it was just really about like science literacy and how it's, it's important to make sure that you understand something before you uh, assert that you understand it and begin teaching people. Um, and, and just, you know, being aware that yes, you can learn anything on the web, but you have to be really thoughtful about how you approach it and, uh, and cautious with the information. So what would you suggest then that people do who do want to find out about something or find out if something's true, but maybe they don't have the scientific background and there hasn't been a scientific communicator who has kind of addressed it already? It's a terrific question. It's, it's a question I get a lot and something that I think about often. Um, I'll start by saying that it's a bit of a shame that there are extremely robust search engines that everybody uses and they fail to accurately address this problem that you can search anything on Google and find three articles that say one side of it and three articles that say the other side of it. And of course, that's where it's important to know which sources are, are reliable and which aren't. But what would be really good is if there was some sort of search, search engine that accurately sifted through scientific literature to achieve, you know, the same sort of responses that Google gives you. Um, and I will say there are now, with the help of AI, tools being developed like this. There's one in particular. It's funny because I'm not, I am in no way affiliated with this company, but I talk about it so much. So I should really be like part of like an ambassador or something. But it's called SciSpace, like science, S-C-I space.com. And it's just a fantastic tool. What it, what it will do is you can go and let's say you can search you basically treat it like Google. Let's say you search, does white noise enhance sleep? Does it improve sleep quality? And what it will do is it will sift through the scientific literature, find the most relevant publications, and then give you like a one set sentence summary, drawing information from the literature and saying yes, you know, or no, or, or nuance, you know, like this paper says yes, this paper says no. Overall conclusion, you know, it's unclear. And to me, it's like, this is the holy grail. Like this is what the world needs, you know, to get people more connected with science and to allow people to start asking questions of scientific literature has been a tremendous challenge forever because the scientific literature is behind paywalls and it's full of jargon and it's not accessible it's, and it's not what people go to for answers. But if we can develop systems like this that create that ability, then that's the best thing possible. But the next question will be, how do we get these systems to um, really give careful and nuanced uh, information and, you know, they don't present papers that have been retracted and, you know, and are there, are there uh, summaries accurate, you know, and um, can they be weighed like by the power, the statistical power of each paper, you know, the, the, the sample size, um, things like that. It, there's, there's gradients to accuracy that will have to be built in and I hope that they will be. And I hope, uh, I hope that these kind of search engines will be adopted and used by the public as they become more powerful. All right. 
Seems like it's got some of the same issues we've got with other uh, AI search tools right now. So I read a paper that you did uh, analyzing your own content success on TikTok. And it brought up for me kind of a question of gatekeeping and scientific information. So I know that social media algorithms, you know, they definitely play a role in the news and in, you know, other kinds of information that people receive now. And, you know, as we learned from the pandemic, sometimes there's grievous results from that. Um, can you briefly uh, summarize, first of all, what you found in your paper? Yeah, yeah. So the short summary of the, what the paper is, is I analyzed 150 of my videos on TikTok. TikTok gives you all sorts of video metric data, like what percentage of the video people watch on average and, you know, obviously how many likes and shares and comments and things like that. So I did all these analyses where I was trying to ask two questions. First, what, how does the algorithm work? You know, what influences the, the performance of videos? Because of course, for anyone who doesn't know on TikTok, you post a video, let's say you have 500 followers, your video not, isn't necessarily gonna get 500 views. It doesn't get shown to just your followers. It can be shown to anyone. And there's a bunch of mysterious factors that influence how viral it can go. And so I was curious about discovering what those factors were. Then the second part of the analysis was breaking my videos down into different categories and asking which type of videos perform the best. And so the summary of the first part is that the percent of viewers who like and share the video was significantly correlated with the number of views that a video got. So the more likable and the more shareable your videos are on TikTok, the better they'll do. Um, other things like comments, the use of hashtags, the use of effects, the use of sounds, none of these things made any difference. Um, the percent of time that people did watch your video or people watch, and this is all my data, by the way, not, not necessarily true about all of TikTok, just mine, but the percent of time people spent watching my video um, and I should say that the ratio of the video that people stuck around for really is what was also predictive of video success. So it's really just likes, shares, and watch, viewer watch time that seem to predict performance. On the second answer, the second question, as far as topics, uh, I found that the, the top two video topics were paper summaries and debunks. Uh, debunking videos, which is, you know, kind of funny now. You may have noticed earlier I mentioned there are three main things that I do in my videos, debunking, presenting papers, and giving scientific principles. There, that is not a coincidence that I have honed in on those topics that I have statistically identified as the most successful. <laughs> because at, at the end of the day, my goal is to reach as many people with scientific content as possible. So I'm thinking then for, you know, members of the public who have creators that they want to see do well, the best strategy for them would be to like and comment on the videos and to watch to the end. Like and share. Yeah. Comments, comments actually seem to be inversely correlated where, or negatively correlated, I should say, where the more video views, um, or the more views a video had, the fewer comments it had per view. So the, it makes sense that as videos, you know, a video gets 20 million views, the percent of people who watch it and comment is going to go down because they're not as engage, you know, that you're naturally going to reach less and less interested audiences as you have more and more views. Um, but uh, it also seems to suggest to me that at least the comments probably aren't really a part of the algorithm, at least as much as many people may uh, suggest that they are. And so here's another question then. Do you um, ask in your videos for people to uh, like and share? Um, I don't ask people to like and share. I do ask them to follow. And which is also funny because for a while I didn't. And then I noticed that 
other creators were there were gaining more and more followers than me and i was like what's going on and i watched some of their videos and they were like follow for more science videos and then i started doing it and my conversion rate from viewer to follower started going up so maybe i should ask them to like and share or maybe i should just say something like share with someone you think would be interested in this but what i do is i try to target video topics that i think are highly shareable fair enough okay so for my listeners if they start seeing a study has found kind of claims in their feeds if they were not a science lover when they were in school is it too late for them now or what should they do uh i would like to think that it's absolutely not too late i think you know it's difficult to become passionate about a topic when you're learning about it in a classroom just in general you know i think and and science is one of those things that for 99 percent of people they only learn about it in a classroom and luckily now it's becoming more and more prevalent on social media to see science stuff um but i mean it's interesting it's cool and and more important than it being interesting and cool is that it's directly relevant to everyone's life you know there's many fields of research like sleep and mood and exercise and you know all these different components um of scientific studies or what people are asking questions about that the answers to those scientific questions can directly impact people's lives and so getting that information out to the public uh, is a goal of mine and a goal of other science communicators. And so there's plenty of, of resources out there now, especially that are, you know, scientists, so certain scientists are really learning about the right way to target audiences. And usually the right way to do that is to give actionable tools. And Andrew Huberman's a good example of that. You know, he started off with his podcast just being sort of general neuroscience stuff and now it's like neuroscience toolkit protocols you know all sorts of stuff for how to do this how to do that how to optimize that um and you know it's smart marketing he knows what he's doing and he's the biggest science communicator in the world right now i think at least in neuroscience so um yeah there's lots of information out there and i think the more people especially if they find it interesting the more people can engage with evidence-based content the better i mean it, in in my view it's like Maybe I'm just overly scientific, but I feel that everything should be guided by evidence. You know, political policy should be guided by evidence. If there's evidence that it improves more lives than it hurts, or if it hurts a lot of people, you know, that should be guiding our decision-making as a society. Uh, and if it can guide your decision-making as an individual taking care of yourself, then all the better. So I totally endorse as much sort of scientific, uh, you know, involvement in people's lives as possible because you know at the end of the day that's sort of the purpose is to improve lives and extend lifespans and and treat conditions and you know improve the human condition well dr ben ryan thank you so much for being on unspun this week of course yeah my pleasure thank you for all the great questions thanks for getting unspun with me this week unspun is a production of me amanda sturgill and is a proud member of the msw media family of podcasts Send me your thoughts and ideas about trickery in the news on Gmail at theunspunpodcast at gmail.com. I even write back. And find this episode's show notes and more information at theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Want to learn more and get smarter? Check out my book, Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News, which is available on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. And until next time, stay sharp, everyone.